This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Greetings. Uh, good everything, Nubians, wherever you are in the world. How y'all doing? Folk from YouTube, what's up? Y'all seeing us later, but we're live in Nubia. Uh, good good morning to you, sir. Hi. Hey, good morning. Good everything, Professor Hunter. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I know you saw the report. You probably reported out on it. The uh, For the first time this month, or last month, I guess, uh, streaming beat cable and broadcast both. I didn't. I didn't report on it. I've been kind of busy, and we we're twins today, even though we didn't um, mean to. Yeah. You said this. Get up and do global I majority. See, I know you gonna wear it. Like we don't plan these things, but that's nice. So we gotta wear. We're in the middle of a push, aren't we? Yes. And let me let me spend just a second. First of all, thank everyone who um, signed a petition. I'm gonna drop the link in the description of this this video if you're watching it on YouTube. And I just I want to say a couple of things because we're gonna talk today about strategy. You sent me this text, and I was like. I'm watching Peaky Blinders and I'm like, they got a strategy to up in fascism, but it got up, it got uh, thwarted from within. Somebody flapped their gums, somebody close to the family, somebody inside, it was, it was betrayed from inside. And I was thinking about Garvey and what he tried to do and that the government was able to get prominent black folk to testify against him. Yeah. And then, you know, I started this petition, not because I started this petition, but because several iterations of this push to pardon Garvey hasn't happened yet. So I feel like, you know, you got a constant drip, constant drip. So, you know, we, we can't stop. So I decided to do this thing on his birthday with his son, you know, so this T-shirt, by the way, um, I went through several iterations. Dr. Garvey signed off on this particular design. And the goal is also to raise some money for his, you know, because portion, a large portion of the proceeds is going to that. So this ain't about a t-shirt because this drop is only going to last a week. After a week, you won't be able to get it anymore next Wednesday, which is the exact week of uh, past his birthday. And uh, so it's more like a collector's item to say I, I participated in something. But, I, you know, I reached out to everybody Dr. Carr, everybody. Everybody. When I say everybody, everybody. So some of you saw Reverend Al Sharpton with the shirt, looking very svelte in it, you know. Rex Chapman, who was getting his whole ass handed to him from Kentucky, wore the shirt and, and pushed the petition. I didn't even know Martina Navratil. Huh? So Lenny Dykstra, like, people were coming for him when he posted it. Oh, so yeah. Lenny, I lived in Philly a long time. Lenny Dykstra, the gambler? Lenny got uh, the... Uh, yeah. Huh? Yeah, he was mad. He was big mad. Uh, mad. I, I, I don't know. And that's what Rex was like, what? Why am I getting all of this smoke? And yeah, I was like, come out of New York and go down to North Philly. Go on Broad Street right there by the Universal Negro Improvement Association uh, Liberty Hall. And uh, go about a half block up from Broad Street. Knock on that door and, 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 and bring that smoke to them. You might not make it out of North Philly since you're a Philly and everything. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> bring all that smoke. In fact, let us know when you come and maybe I'll meet you there. Um, and shout out to Yvette Nicole Brown, who, you know, as yeah, an actor, yeah. you know, she was the first person to, you know, she she said, I'm going to an event for Karen Bass. I'm going to wear it. And, you know, I was like, thank you. But to me, it's stunning the people that I, I reached out to that didn't. People who, you know, some of y'all think are down, you know, and I'm not saying because they didn't do it, they weren't down, but no response. But you'll reach out to me if you want to promote something. You reach out to me if you want to come on the show. You reach out to me for things you want to get done. And this, this is not for me. This is to pardon Mark. So it's weird to me, Dr. Carr. Do that for them. 
unless they get a, a call back to play play Marcus Garvey and maybe I don't know HBO or anyway. But, it's Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Mm. Sorry about that. That's, that's right. Netflix and uh, the American Negro don't realize though that you know Nollywood got Netflix on lock. I, I seen about ten more Nollywood projects on it, and all this in the original Yoruba. I'm like, look at these Negroes. Oh, the American Negro, y'all keep cutting yourself off from the world. Find out what's gonna happen to y'all. Already in the trash can country, you about to be in the trash can in the trash can. But you know, we'll say that. <laughs> uh, the Negro. Uh, so you know. So, so, so I mean, what what is this over this week since uh since it launched? Uh, what um what are your thoughts? What are you? I'm confused and not confused because it's uh, 128 consecutive Saturdays with you. I realized that you know our freedom will always be fought by a very small handful, and then when we get close, the bandwagon will get heavy. And it looks like victory, everybody will jump on, and that's great, you know. But the work is hard, and to get people to do something that cost them nothing but a few seconds, you know, it's baffling to me. The the signature the uh, petition had over two hundred thousand views and less than five thousand signatures. That means two hundred thousand people clicked on it and didn't take the one minute to just click, 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 and and then hit send. Right. That's good to know. I mean, it's good to know that many people viewed it because if you can see that, that means the pe uh, people that change that org can see it too. Yeah. And also, trying to reconcile, what does that mean? Like, oh, this is not a worthy cause. Oh, this cause doesn't. Uh, it's not going to do anything. All right. Yeah, it's symbolic. I just, I don't understand. And then, but again, you know, Garvey was taken out primarily by people who look like him, I think, you know, a lot of, I mean, of course the government has to plan, J. Edgar Hoover, we'll talk about that more uh, a little bit today, even though I've been talking about it. Thank you for coming on my radio show on Marcus Garvey. That is, uh, like you said, the global majority. That was an honor, always, always an honor to join you in that space. Ever, ever since I brought me up there that first time, that is, uh, you walk in that space, I know it's different now because of COVID, but, uh, you know, we can we will never displace the radio and talk radio. We're not in the golden age anymore. Anybody with a, a uplink and anyway, I, anyway, yeah. But with you, that you know, that reminds me of the throwback days. You know what I'm saying? You're a throwback. So to be anywhere where you're convening on the radio, that is not anything I take for granted. Thank you for the invitation. And though you, you all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all old enough to remember the greats of talk radio and you're you you are you are not only in that tradition you represent them so i'm grateful all right well, I, I thank you um but i look at myself more as a conduit you know of like course, a, of course even with this it's like let's just put the pieces in place you know because i feel like and this is what i also came to the conclusion if if a person's not doing it themselves so like when you think about the boys and and uh a philip randolph Garvey was a threat because he was dealing with people that they wanted to, you know, so it's like, there's, there's only room for one of us. So there's only room for two of us. Oh, here you come. You're taking away some of our market share. What are you dipping into our ability to, you know, it's like, I, I'm confused, but it's a, it feels like a threat. Right. And I, I look at that, like, that's weird to me hmm. uh, because if the mission is freedom, who cares how we get there? You know, I mean, I don't care how we get there, to be honest with you, which is why I reached out to everybody, like even people I don't F with, 
I'm like, can y'all, can you, and some people that I don't F with wore the shirt and yeah, and, and to put the link out and I don't F with them. I mean, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, and, and we're in the year 1972 of the Gary Convention, which was the spring of 1972. I was talking about that with I have a student in my class over at the law school who is from Gary. And we were talking about Richard Hatcher, you know, who, who along with uh, Stokes, Carl Stokes, the first two black mayors of large cities in this country. And it was Hatcher who hosted and the Gary government, the 1972 political convention. In fact, I think I was just rereading uh, this book here, The Defeat of Black Power, about this very point. Uh, in fact, the Gary Convention, this is Leonard Moore's book, uh, The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights in the National Black Conven Political Convention, 1972. And of course, there's Amir Baraka, who ended up being the chair of the, um, the convention, which was set up at first glance, recognizably to like a Democratic or at this point, White Nationalist Party convention by state delegations. And the, the key to that convention which almost came apart on several occasions. The great cream Monday Moore was there talking about reparations. The opening ceremony, um, of course, was attended by and on, on the uh, and honored guests on, on the rostrum, um, Coretta Scott King and Betty Shabazz. Uh, Jesse Jackson, of course, opened up with this nation time. In fact, there's a, a lot of footage uh, from the convention, particularly the, 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 the mass meetings after they broke off into state delegations and caucuses. Uh, there's a there's a film that has been released fairly recently uh, called Nation Time, or is it Gary 1972? But anyway, uh, Ron Walters. I mean, think about a lot of people who are still around. Ron Daniels, um, of course, James Turner, who uh, just made transition. We talked about James Turner, but I mean, just every walk of life. Elected officials. Coleman Young at that time was a state senator from Michigan. Would eventually be the mayor of Detroit. And I, I just mentioned all that to say that at the center of that convention where they talked about what should be the black political agenda, there were two things. Number, number one that emerged out of that was a set of principles and a set of objectives that were agreed upon. And after 1972 is when you see the explosion, for example, in black elected officials, even as the state is moving against all of these folks, because COINTELPRO was running hot by then. Okay. But the, but the, that's the first thing. But the second thing to what you're raising, Prof, is that the reason that convention was able to not only coalesce and come together, but remain together and get to the end, because there were moments when, like, the Michigan delegation uh, was walking out. There's a famous moment captured on film when Coleman Young and them, these are some of them are elected officials. They're, many of them are in organized labor, as Coleman Young was. And they simply can't get down with some of the more, you know, uh, what they would consider radical dimensions. You know, the black nationalists are there. I mean, everybody is there. Everybody to the point you're raising. And as the Michigan delegation is walking out of the hall, you know, all the state delegation and people are like, no, no, no. Baraka comes to the microphone. He's looking over and in his brilliant way, you know, Baraka could be fiery. Baraka could be, but he was an artist. He's a poet. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, he's at the, he leans into the microphone. He's looking, he said, Michigan, Michigan. Michigan, Michigan. And people start taking up the, they turn around and come back in. You don't, hey, what up? no, Michigan, Michigan, to the point you're raising. We don't agree on everything. 
when we say black, as we've talked about many times, whether Walter Rodney, who we just finished up the groundings with my brothers, talks about it as a political formation, everything that isn't white because whiteness created blackness, whether we think about it in cultural variations, black ultimately works politically when there is a principle family of operational unity. In other words, I don't agree with you on this. You don't agree with me on that. But on this, we must come together. So when you say the, the destination, the goal is there, I'm not sure at all that goal mm. is shared. And so, well, yeah, that's- that's- so yeah, operational unity should have had us all overflowing yeah. the boundaries of something right. that's something that Dr. Garvey, Julius Garvey want. And it's also something that's right. But I mean, this is a simple thing. But Barack Obama didn't sign it when he was... Uh, called upon to do so and he was the one and forget the hundreds and millions of signatures there was one signature could have done it and they've petitioned every president since jimmy carter in fact the first person to put petition for executive clemency for a pardon was marcus garvey himself from the atlanta federal penitentiary to calvin cooch so i mean you know yeah and, and, and as far as i'm concerned barack obama i hope he lives another hundred years and and, and every second of every hour of every uh, day of his life he will never he will never be able to explain why he didn't do that actually he would be able to explain it but i doubt he would because that would be too embarrassing because after all he black as hell when he wants you to vote for him but anyway come on back <laughs> can you hold up that book again please oh yeah yeah the uh the feet of black power yeah yes. okay. all right hold on let me give a solo view uh okay, okay. Civil Rights in the National Black Political Convention of 1972 so that was a specific thing but the defeat of black power um and I mean that's that's, that's marketing. Because yeah, we're, we're here. Black Power wasn't defeated, but you okay. know, uh, uh, what is this? Uh, who who? Oh yeah, Louisiana State University Press got to make a little bit of their money back. University presses usually operate on a, on a loss margin, so you know you got to have something sexy so the white folks will buy it, because okay. apparently our market is enough until we decide it is. But anyway, that's nuts. that's so. Um, I, I mentioned what I mentioned, not out of you know, uh, anything other than facts, right? So I just wanted to put the facts out there and also to to say that, you know, I'm so grateful to the people that did, you know, pick up their, you know, some folk and we got it. I was like, yes, I, Nubians, yes, um, absolutely uh, did what needed to be done and it's not over, right? We, I'm going to keep going. You're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. But we were watching a documentary together inside Nubia um, thank you, Roy T. Anderson, his documentary, which you are featured prominently in. Every time you come on the screen, it just lights up. And I was like, come on through, Doc. Nah, my man, my man. I love Roy Anderson. Roy and his wife, the whole team. You know, Roy, who's a... Well, you interviewed Roy. You talked to Roy. Yes, yeah, he was on Roy the show. was a stuntman. I mean, Roy kills me, but I saw... I, I, I love Roy telling them Hollywood stories because you don't think about the people who are running around getting blown up, getting hit by... You think, oh, that's Denzel. No, that's not Denzel. That's Roy Anderson. Yes. <laughs> anyway, but he took his own... They took their own money to make them. Yeah, I mean, you think about his first documentary was about the Maroons of Jamaica, which, that's you know, right. we're going to have... An original maroon in uh, later on, Doctor Senyata will be joining us. You know, yeah. we're all maroons in our minds, um, and and that when Doctor Garvey reached out to do this documentary, uh, he was actually working on a documentary for Nanny uh, about Queen Nanny, and he didn't have the time, but it came back around. So we were talking about that um, on the show last week, you know. But I think about him in Marcus Garvey Park, 
screening his film on Wednesday and at the exact same time in Nubia, more than 577 people are watching that same film and being able to comment, talk with one another about different things. And as we were watching it, you know, and some people, you know, will label Dr. Uh, Marcus Garvey as a grifter because he took this money from people. But I was like, didn't he buy those ships, though? And didn't he have all over the world, you know, Negro improvement spaces where people are inspired to do for self? And I'm like, don't some of y'all buy a prayer cloth from pastors and tithe the churches that give you nothing, but they're not grifters. But he was a grifter and he had whole ass ships that actually sailed. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but perfection is a process. And the money that he was getting was from people who were domestic workers and sharecroppers, people that didn't have a whole lot of money, just giving $5. And that was a whole lot back then to do something for self. And he uplifted a whole generation of people that did give rise to Bob Marley and Marcus um, Malcolm X and, and a whole host of African leaders. That's worth it, I think. Grifter? Okay, interesting. People say a lot of things, as my friend John Bracey at University of Massachusetts has said, you know, people tend to spin theories on very small margins of knowledge. I mean, we all do it. You know, we all do it. And so when you think about the the, the counter program to Garvey, when Garvey makes transition in 1940 in London, you know, the, the organization continues. Thomas Harvey uh, takes over at some point. They pay for Garvey's body to be funeralized in, in England. And Amy Jakes Garvey, you know, Julius and Marcus Garvey's mother, really is the one who uh, who keeps it going. But there is a there's a concerted effort to destroy Garvey to by erasure. I mean, this is the uh, paperback edition of a book that she paid for publication herself called Garvey and Garveyism. And for those of you who uh, if you go to narrative, you'll see uh, we did extensive conversation about Marcus Garvey. You know, we this at this point, this is our third August. So right. we've done hours on Garvey and you should go in and, and look at that. But I do want to mention the fact that she paid for this. Now, this isn't her. This isn't. I mean, I have the other one, but this is the not the original edition. This is uh, the Collier Books edition from 1970, because, you know, for decades, it was an attempt to erase Marcus Garvey's name. But once the Black Power movement busts up and they realize they can't erase his name, well, then these companies start coming in out of the social structure and figuring they can profit. And if you see, uh, let me see here. This, for example, is one of the many editions. This is the Athenium edition of Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey, which came out in 1923 and 1925. Marcus Gar uh, Amy Jakes Garvey edits that actually 25 and 27, I think. Uh, Hollis Lynch at Columbia University wrote the uh, wrote the uh, edition uh, that wrote the uh, forward to this edition. But there's uh, Dr. Garvey's mother. There's Julius Garvey's mother, Amy Jakes Garvey. And you see it is dedicated to the true and loyal members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association in the cause of African redemption. Well, there's no money in African redemption. Now, in 2022, there's a lot of money in uh, making movies about African redemption. Um, it typically historically, you know, I mean, I, I want to see the, the woman king too. Uh, of course, the branding leads you to believe that woman and king are you have to use that adjective, uh, woman king. But if you go back to classical Africa, Peroa or Pharaoh, which is doesn't translate to king at all, but great house, 
there were women who occupied the Perouah, the most famous of which was the Hatshepsut. So you don't have to say female pharaoh. I mean, it's actually it's absurd. But, you know, when you were following behind your master, it's easy to distort your view of yourself because you're looking through somebody else's eyeballs. But so but um, to my point, historically, now you can talk about triumph, the scorpion king, the woman king. But in terms of contemporary movements, African redemption is anti-world system in terms of this world system where we've been exploited. And Garveyism is a, a, a real threat to the world system as it emerged in the teens and 20s because two things are happening. One, you're between European international conflicts over the next phase of the European world system. That we, we kind of, it's, it's too long, so we kind of use a phrase that Europe used to kind of make itself, because it sits at the center of the world in its imagination, make every, make it think, make us think that we're all in it. So by inter, inter-conflict period, the 1920s and 30s, teens, 20s and 30s, uh, they would call it uh, the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, as if the whole world was at war, instead of Europeans fighting each other and pulling some of the rest of us in. But that's the first thing. There was a crack. There's a transition taking place by the end of so-called World War II. The United States emerges ascendant and nears and ultimately secures the center of this new world system. But they weren't at the center of the new world system in 1913, 14, and 15. And so that's the first thing. Garveyism emerges when there's a crack. And guess what? The overwhelming majority of people in the world are not white. I'm not European or not the children of the Europeans in terms of the modern state system, particularly the Western Hemisphere. And so they are chafing under this assault. Europe has not yet secured and arguably never secures Africa completely. And they, but they're still engaged in the war phase, the, the battle phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Western Hemisphere still chafing under European oppression, trying to fight them their way out. And so Garveyism appears at a moment when the Europeans are fighting each other and they didn't pull the, their cousins, the Americans, in. And they fighting each other. And guess what? While they're fighting, the vast majority of the world is like, they shooting. I made you look. In other words, now they gonna, we're going to fight to get out. So Garveyism is a real threat, which is why these European countries, many of whom were in conflict, and the United States, who is their emerging large rival, cooperate on the idea of suppressing Garveyism. Mm. The, 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 the second thing is Garveyism is really does operate around the concept of operational unity. We all don't have to agree. So you got Garveyites. In fact, I'm going to show you a book and then we'll keep going. This is, um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. This is my friend, James G. Spady, who is now an ancestor. And that's a story for another day. Some of you all know Spady uh, from Philly, lived in Philly many years anyway. This is Spady's book, Marcus Garvey, Jazz, Reggae, and Hip Hop, and the African diaspora, James G. Spady. Now, I talked about Spady a lot with my uh, Freedom School students uh, a couple of summers ago when he made transition. We talked about him a lot because, you know, they're his grandchildren in many ways. They from Philly. He he lived in Philly a long time. But when I when I tell you operational unity, let me just quote you something right quick, uh, uh, Professor Hunter. This is from 1922 from an article by John Fitzgerald, uh, John Fitzgerald and Odie Scruggs, a note on Marcus Garvey at Harvard, 1922. We talk about operational unity, right? Now, uh, oh, by the way, this book published by the Marcus Garvey Foundation Publishers, Philadelphia. Uh, there are interviews in here that you won't find anywhere else because Spady talked to Thomas Harvey. Spady interviewed 
and that's a story for another day. I'm going to get going down and start talking about James Spady. If you know James Spady, you know what I'm talking about. This isn't secondhand information in this book. Any of the people who are in it. Let me read this. He says, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey was introduced to an enthusiastic audience at Harvard by, wait for it, Charles Hamilton Houston. Operational unity. And y'all know Charles Hamilton Houston, who was called the man who, chill, who killed Jim Crow, Vice Dean, Howard University Law School, trained among other spots, Wood Robinson, uh, Oliver Hill, Thurgood Marshall, and then made transition in 1950 just at the lip of these breakthrough uh, cases, which, of course, include Brown versus Board of Education, Polly Murray, Howard, let, let, let's go. What is what does he say? He, you know, he was a student at Harvard uh, Law School, came out of Dunbar High School in D.C., where he was born and raised. Uh, went to Amherst College. In fact, I have a student in my class now at, at the law school at Howard who went to Amherst. It's very interesting to see. This. I, I, shout out to my brilliant young students. I, just, I had them Wednesday night. Otherwise, I'd have been, you know, with everybody watching Roy's documentary. But uh, Charlie Houston, of course, famous. Now, uh, let's tie him to uh, the junior senator from Illinois who became president of the United States for two terms. Uh, when people said, oh, you know, he's uh, Barack Obama's the first editor of the Harvard Law Review. Yeah, Charlie Houston was an, an editor, not the editor in chief, but an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Let's continue. He says, this is what Houston said. Houston announced, and this is Spady. Spady's research is nobody better. But see, Spady published primarily black institutions, black living institutions like the UNIA, and then what people do, and I'm talking to you five or six scholars who perhaps like people who watch uh, watch the petition and didn't sign, who come in on, watch us on YouTube or maybe even subscribe to Narrative. Good to see y'all. Operational Unity. Got no problem with you. And I know some of you Negroes is the ones who quote James Spady, but not for attribution because you think nobody will ever find it. And so, yeah, I know why we don't always talk because when, when people like me show up, that's when you know. And we all know. We know what it is. Governance. Conversation. This is what Houston announced. This Charlie Houston, as a law student at Harvard, 1922, introduces Marcus Garvey, who was on the campus of Harvard. This is what Charles Houston has to say. He says, honored guests and fellow members of the Nile Club. The Nile Club. Yeah, N-I-L-E. Story for another day. I'd have to say, this is what Houston says, I'd have to say that this is the most exciting moment of my entire educational experience. Dunbar High School, Amherst College, Harvard University. The most exciting moment of my entire educational experience, both as a student and teacher here at Harvard and elsewhere. He says, in my capacity as presiding officer of this club, an organization that was conceived for just such purposes as tonight's. I am pleased and privileged to present to you a man whom I personally regard as being not only the greatest leader of men since Moses, it's Charles Hampton Houston, Brown versus Board of Education, hey, social structure. You don't know nothing about Charles Hampton Houston. He says the greatest per leader since Moses, he says, but a bearer of goodwill to all persons of African descent everywhere. Gentlemen, the Honorable Marcus Garvey, provisional president of all Africa. <laughs> now, when's the last time anybody heard Charles Hamilton Houston? First of all, I heard his name. If you heard his name, I know you didn't hear that. Barack, 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 brother, Barack Hussein. Last time that came, since you love talking about how you standing on shoulders, guess what? The shoulders of the man that killed Jim Crow, you know who he's standing on? 
You heard what he said at his own mouth, but you gotta go James Spady for that. And governors, you're not gonna find. And if you find that in a book on Garvey somewhere, they're gonna figure out a way to nuance it. Well, he was under pressure. Man. Well, everybody, calm down. You gotta be scared of your master. Oh, because uh, you know you shouldn't have a master, and that's the other part of Garveyism. He overflowed national boundaries. He spoke to something deep in our soul, and he had no regard for oppressors. That's why he had to be stopped, <laughs> and he couldn't stop him. Because look at us. <laughs> nice. Um, so you also talked about, uh, Hubert Henry Harrison yes. in, and there's a, you know, you should know those of you in narrative go to that amazing conversation. Cause that's the first time I ever heard that name and that relationship to Garvey and how maybe, you know, because nothing starts from the beginning. There's always a, a begatting, right? There's always something before, and then things evolve, which is why no one person should be able to take credit for anything because everything comes from something. Everything. Why the ego man is a crazy thing that people need to have plant flags and have discovery and and say they're the first to do something. And they're you even if you're the first to do something, somebody broke down some barriers to make that even possible. None of us operate on our own steam, period. Right. That said, I have a question for you. Strategy, because we're talking strategy. Mm -hmm. And Garvey's strategy was for the whole diaspora, anywhere Black people are, for them to know that they could be self-sufficient. So that meant that they could, you know, farm their own food, get their own, you know, build their own community, hold their heads up high, knowing from whence they come. And the shipping idea was to be able to travel from the throughout the diaspora and trade goods and services. Because guess where most of the food is grown? in warm climates. So that was, it was freaking brilliant. Strategy, erasure versus killing. So we know Fred Hampton, Malcolm, Martin, Medgar, gotta get rid of these people, they're dangerous. I think it's more potent to, to misinform, disinform and try to erase. I just wanted to know your thoughts on strategy and then how do we combat the strategy? Because you know, um, discrediting somebody, trying to undermine somebody. They tried it with King, you know, oh, he's cheating and oh, he might be this and that, you know, they sent the letter to Coretta and, all, you know, tried to find every, uh, that didn't work. All right, we got to kill him. What What are your thoughts on that? Um, and moving forward in terms of how we, as you mentioned, come together collectively to thwart that. Hmm. Well, I think as we've talked about many times and we'll continue to discuss, which is the beauty of us coming together. Ideas, this is again, I mean, the time we spent with Walter Rodney's The Grounding with my brothers last Monday, the Monday before that, and then this coming up Monday, we'll continue to have conversations as we think about what we wanna do next collectively studying on in office hours and have conversations. That time is invaluable because you, when you put ideas into the conversation through the process of study contemplation those ideas then rub up against each other and in that context they then spark action so of course the challenge of organization is to wed that wed that study and action to a common objective and common sets of objectives and we know that that works i would say that ideas Ideas are the fuel that lead to the unintended consequences for any formation that would try to oppress people. Let me make that very concrete. 
I struggled through um, because we are of African descent. I know that some of my students or people I will encounter from moment to moment have been pulled into this formation because of the perpetual blitz of social structure mass media, white facing media. Uh, this new show that uh, our brother Lenard has, uh, who is called Charlemagne the God, I think. Have you seen any of that? No. Okay, I had neither, but I, I forced myself for about 30 minutes to go through some of the clips again. Uh, streaming, eclipsed, uh, broadcast, and cable for the first time, both of them, last month. And we know that, you know, we, we're not ahead of the game. Obviously, COVID put a lot of people in this space. And now we've kind of, we continue in this space. And it gave us a crack to build some institutional space where we can do this real core work. And, of course, we still have this space yeah people in so i went on to youtube just to see you know and i said and, and i watched the clips i watched a little bit of interview with Issa ray and i saw flame and uh what's the white dude married to the black woman the comedian who's always cast as the uh, Bill Burr? no no uh gary you know, gary yeah, yeah yeah gary Owen. that's him yeah yeah a lot, yeah. Like a lot of white comedians married to black Okay. Good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. But you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. And so I, that's the, I guess there's a, there's a, there's a regular panel. I won't get too deep into this because again, you know, I know what it is, but the point is that to something you raised a second ago, when you say, you know, we know the counterintelligence program, we know, of course, J. Edgar Hoover, John Edgar Hoover coming out of George Washington Law School, uh, who creates basically the, the FBI. And who cuts his eye teeth on Marcus Garvey. If you look at Robert Hill, who edited the Marcus Garvey papers, who was continued to edit those papers, he did another volume called Raycon, which is the racial conditions uh, program, where they had everybody under surveillance. April Randolph, Candler Owen, considered the radicals. Uh, Marcus Garvey, Du Bois. I mean, you see the documents. Hill puts them together in a nice little uh, volume. Um, and so, and many of those people, particularly Randolph, Du Bois, them are involved in the Garvey Must Go campaign, and that is in part because they feel like Garvey and Garveyism is a an action or a behavior as a movement that could harm Black people in the United States. Uh, well, it's not just ideology; it's them thinking strategically what will draw more attention to us and cause problems in some ways. And so, uh, you know, Du Bois, who has his own internal struggle, I would say that honesty is not something that you can accuse him of not embracing. He, but he's honestly stumbling around. Remember, as the war is starting, he's got this closed ranks idea because he wants to be involved. And he thinks black people, if we sacrifice and do this, perhaps it'll advance the cause. And then coming back from World War One, he puts in his in the same crisis magazine he edits his famous We Return Fighting uh essay so it's i mean editorial so i mean he's he's back and forth a philip randolph and them you know he's like yeah the germans i don't know that we should not sit this out maybe negroes should sit this out because you the one lynching us not the germans and him and chandler owen them guys it's like man these guys got a problem then you got this african blood brotherhood cyril briggs and them. There's a lot of formations going on in 1920s teens and 20s and some of them are recruited into this garvey must go campaign because garvey is the garveyites the members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World, when they show up, these are the Negroes that nobody invited. <laughs> you know, I mean, so you 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 got your best dress and tuxedo on. You're sitting here trying to make sure that you speak the king's English. Uh, and then you, you know, and then here come the cats who wait tables, the cab drivers, the people without no job. And they come in 
Ethiopia, the land of our father. Amen. They gonna run us all out of here, bro. <laughs> Come on, man. Africa for the Africa. Now, if you don't think that that's not the reaction in terms of class to many of the Garvey folk, fast forward to today. You know your cousins and them that show up. Now, you know them Negroes, but you know them from the corner. You know them from the block. You know them from the porch. You don't want to see them at the job. These Negroes is causing problems. Well, guess what? Those are our people. And you really do love them when you get in trouble because, you know, them, them Negroes ain't scared of police. Or if they are scared, they swallow their fear for you. And they fight for you. But at any rate, let me get to the point when you raised the question uh, on, on, on strategy and what we do going forward. Well, it is the ideas that are being promoted through the UNIA that are animating people. And here we want to take Marcus Garvey for a moment, not out of the equation, but move him so you can see all the people that are surrounding him, the millions that are surrounding him. As he said uh, when he's leaving the federal penitentiary, I have the millions who surround me. Now, as Tony Martin would write, and we talked about this Monday on, on, on your show, Marcus Garvey Hero, which is a beautiful little uh, book for like high school students, maybe undergraduates these days, the first biography, Tony Martin, my man, Tony Martin, who had something called the New Marcus Garvey Library. I don't have a picture of him there, but you can see some of the other books that he published in the New Marcus Garvey Library. I keep a lot of them back here because I knew Tony well. That was my, that was my man. Um, at any rate, what Tony Martin writes about in here at the end of Marcus Garvey Hero is that one of the most effective things about Garveyism was Garvey himself because he was a, an electric speaker, a compelling speaker, and an electric and compelling writer. So many, 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 many millions more than heard him, read him. And Martin says you cannot overlook the power of the written word when it comes to Garvey. When you read the Negro world, which, by the way, uh, in fact, African fundamentalism and literary Garveyism, two of the books in the New Marcus Garvey Library, talk about Amy Jakes Garvey, Amy Ashwood Garvey, his first wife. And there's a huge story there. Hubert Harrison's part of this story. Some of you, but anyway, y'all can go to narrative and look at when we go through all this. The point is that these publications were pushing ideas. We're pushing accomplishments of the organization. Garvey is, is crystallizing ideas. And as he is doing that, those ideas overflow the boundaries of a social structure's ability to regulate Black people. Now, what does that mean as a matter of strategy? Well, we have ideas. We have influence that comes from people listening and thinking through those ideas. The borders that hold up the modern world system also are interlinked. But for those of us who find ourselves within these countries, in this modern world system, if you are oppressed, the key to that system remaining over all of these folk is that while they are looking at people beyond national boundaries and talking about how we can keep everybody in line, they want you to stick up under that flag, that specific flag of the people who got you oppressed in this system. So they don't want the United States people to talk to the Jamaicans. They don't want the Jamaicans to talk to the people in uh, Cameroon. They don't want those people to talk to the people in England, even though those people have much more in common than they do difference, whether it be class, whether it be race, particularly those two things. Now, when you think about that in the context of the UNIA, it becomes very apparent what we must do and continue to do going forward. Right now, in our conversation, many of the people in this conversation now they're coming from all over the United States. I'm sorry, I don't mean start there. They come from all over the world, including Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, the U.S. I'm talking about in this conversation right now. 
in its iteration in Nubia as we're in real time interacting with each other. The chat is filling up. People are talking, having conversation. And later on, as it opens up and other people come in, people are sitting there, you know, their rhythms by this, you know, uh, Bishop Kamathi down at Shrine Black Madonna presiding bishop. The bishops watched that. I, I was corresponding with Jeremiah Wright uh, day for yesterday. You know, Bob Jeremiah is in here. Of course, we talk about Freddie Haynes. So many others. There are people all over the world. Baba Osnam in the UK, out of Soja and them. All the people in the continent of Africa, the Caribbean. So that is a problem for a system that relies on us sticking up under whatever flag we see ourselves. But see, Garvey. The UNIA creates a flag that destroys the national boundaries, red, black, and green. And as Roy Ayers say in his uh, in his uh, in his song, "Red, black, and green." If you think about it, you know what I mean. That's the that's the that's that's the hook in that song. Red is for the cup. You know, he starts talking about the red, but at the end, the hook is red, black, and green. If you think about it, you know what I mean. That's a problem. That's not red, white, and blue with stars and stripes. That's not any of the flags of Africa or the Caribbean, which take their colors in many ways from Garvey. And in the case of Kwame Nkrumah, who, uh, who came in contact with Garveyism as a young man, the black star in the Ghanaian flag is taken directly from Garvey, as is the black star line, the name of the shipping companies in Ghana, government shipping companies. Those, those tie together. And so that's a real threat. That is a real threat. Why? Because that idea will then spark the possibility of cooperation. That's why on this uh, on this bird app, as the kids call it, Twitter, I'm looking at stuff trending uh, on uh, the day that you launched the petition. And then subsequently, we see Pardon Garvey and Marcus Garvey trending. Why? The algorithm can't suppress it. But then every day for the last few weeks, I'm seeing some form of op, op type, uh, weaponized ignorance coming up, Akata, Adas, Tariq Nasheed. I'm naming these people. Why? Because these are open enemies of the idea of operational unity. And I know that it ain't all coming from any of those people. This is weaponized ignorance that understands the key to keeping people oppressed is to keeping them apart. You've got to keep them apart. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm seeing this stuff trending. And I know unlike that Garvey and pardon Garvey hashtag, this is trending because somebody who has an interest in keeping us apart is dropping this, dropping this, dropping this. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, go ahead. You, you... <laughs> I was going to say the ignorance part, um, you know, talking with Roy, who is Jamaican, Roy Anderson, who did the documentary that you were featured in that we screened in Nubia and we're going to be screening more films uh, together. And I'm lo loving that. We okay. discovered something. We discovered something in doing it. Um, but actually, Uraeus, when he dropped that um, silent film when, we were, when you were on the road, Oscar Michaud. And we all got to watch Oscar Michaud together. That, that, that really cracked open the possibility of what we could do together. But um, Roy said he didn't learn about Marcus Garvey and he's Jamaican. And and I asked you, when did you run into him? You were like, not in school. I didn't learn about him in school. You know, my father had a little black pamphlet, as I was telling you on Wednesday. It was in my house, so I knew who Garvey was, but I didn't learn about it in school. And and so talking to Dr. Garvey, uh, Julius Garvey, who was in Jamaica on Marcus Garvey Day, you know, celebrating his father's birthday, but his push in the, his organization that you can all reach at themarcusgarvey.org, which is where the proceeds from this shirt is going, Yes, is to educate 
people about his dad. Like he wants Garveyism and Garvey's mission and Marcus Garvey to be taught in schools in Jamaica, which is yeah. not it's not it's not national. So I wanted to bring someone in who uh, was raised up in the tradition of Garvey. Yes, one of our sisters who um, makes the best tea. Let me just. I want before we get into this, let me bring in Dr. Sinyata Amen. Hey, unmute yourself. And, and, let me, and let me tell you, I was walking because I've been doing getting my 10,000 steps in every day. And I'm walking in the park and I'm smelling something that smells like what you put in Octavia Butler. It's like elderberry or something. And I was like, I got a whiff. And I was like, I think that's in Sinyata's tea because I, 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 the tea is so aromatic. It is so amazingly delicious. And that when I was walking in the woods, I was like, she done went out in the woods and picked some stuff that smelled good and put this in this tea. So thank you for that. Yes. It is my absolute pleasure. Hello, beautiful people. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, Dr. Carr, you're on fire. No, we are, no, no. We were just preparing the ground. We were waiting for you to come. We need you to talk about the homie, the big homie. Where's girl? How are you, Dr. Amin? Feeling good, feeling good. Um, you know, happy, happy birthday. I know this is Jamaican Independence uh, Emancipation Month and yes, Black August. So, uh, it's always exciting. And Jamaicans, uh, true to form, have no behavior whatsoever. So, we just celebrate the whole month. Uh, we'll celebrate Jamaica the whole year. You give us an opportunity to talk about Jamaica, it's going to enter the conversation. And Jamaicans have an expression walk with your flag. Meaning everywhere you go in your pocket is a little Jamaican flag, some kind of symbol. So wherever you go, if there's something great happening or you did something, you're pulling out your flag. <laughs> <laughs> advertising always yes. for Jamaica. You'll see that with the runners in Jamaica. Oh, no nobody question. has outfits that are more representative of their <laughs> No question. I want, no. I want to ask you, Dr. Amin, what I've asked everybody now, and that seems to be like, that's going to be like my go-to question. When did you bump into Marcus Garvey? Mm. Oh, this is a great question. Um, and I'm really honored to be here today, uh, Professor Hunter. It's always great to, to and the community that you've created really continues that spirit of, of Marcus Garvey. And I got to say, I never knew a time without Marcus Garvey. Wow. Um, my grandfather was a Garveyite uh, in Jamaica, before I was ever born. So my grandfather was born in 1913. And he had, um, he, and incidentally, he lived through the, uh, the pandemic at that time. And he remembered people wearing, he was a little boy then, but he remembered people wearing, he told me that story long ago. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, so at the height of Corona, of course, we take it seriously. But then I thought, you know, if he had seen all these things and survived it, we gonna be all right. Like Kendrick Lamar said, no <laughs> we're going to, we're going to get to the other side. We're going to have some pain and anguish, but we, you know, he lived to be a grandfather. So obviously this happened, right? Well, I'll say that I never knew a time Dr. Carr without Marcus Garvey in my existence. He was talked about all the time in our house. A lot of it, I had no idea what my, um, you know, what my parents and grandparents were talking about. I was like, what? You know, but um as, as children, as children would not, but but the name was there. All the time. And I would hear stories. Um and and my grandfather talked about buying a ticket on the Black Star line. He talked about um his because his his mother was also 
pro-Garvey. Um, she was Cuban and had come to Jamaica and um, was my first healer of my first teacher of healing of traditional medicine. And I spent a lot of time with her in Jamaica, just in the woods, like mm -hmm. Professor Hunter was saying, <laughs> and foraging and in the woods and, and pulling stuff and learning herbs. And um, one of the things I think she saw in Cuba was the idea that um, blackness needed to be pushed forward. She was a, a very dark woman and the idea that uh, unions you know, this whole pro-union, pro-organization that we need to get into that. Um, so I think my grandfather was already programmed for that. And so when Garvey came along, even when he was a boy, it it sparked something. And my grandmother never, my great-grandmother never said no. Like, oh, that's the rowdy Negroes and you can't. <laughs> and there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that in Jamaica, much the same as the thing that Garvey spurned later, right? Like the thing that grew out of Garveyism, which is Rastafarianism, there's a lot of, um, you know, that's not polite Jamaican behavior until it became commercial. Until Bob Marley. Until he put it on. As Dr. James Turner uh, used to talk about it, he said, you know, I came from not the working class, the laboring classes. In other words, right. so, I mean, you have your folk. I mean, it's one thing to be working class. You got a job, you get a pay stub, you pay your tax. The laboring class is just out here laboring. And that and you're right. That's that resonant. That's what upset the, the upper class about Garveyism. These them Negroes who work for us do this. But we don't let y'all plan no policy. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So, so your people were laboring yeah. class people. And yeah. you are too. It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> right. Don't get uppity. Don't um. get uppity. No question. <laughs> Don't get uppity. That's going to cause a, a shift in this uh, paradigm of upper class, you know, middle, middle to upper and upper, upper class, and then lower class, right? In this caste system in Jamaica, that there's really no middle class at that time, right? There's no, there's no middle. There's only proximity to whiteness. So you got your, you know, high yellow, light skinned folk or your folks with lots of money. So you could be light skinned and not have money and enter that class or you could be dark and have money but you cannot be dark and have no money so there's there's this um this class division that was as you mentioned in place and firmly in place and so that buffering that the british handed off as they do in the as they had in colonial uh culture all over the world then became this very clear thing that Garvey saw. It's a clear thing that uh, my grandfather as a carpenter and his brother's a carpenter, his father's a carpenter. Mm. Uh, my great-grandmother was a was seamstress in, in, in addition to being an herbalist, right? So these are working class people. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting to note that my grandmother's family, darker skinned people, but landholders, on the other side. So there's this class disparity, right? You have these people from Mandeville who are landholders and, you know, and then you have these folks in Kingston and um, in the St. Andrew that are not. So they're sometimes what we're thinking of just colorism actually crosses those lines into those societies as long as your resources are there. And I'm assuming right? there's also a, um, an urban rural 
kind of ethic it worked there. I mean, most of the Garvey chapters in the U.S., for example, were in southern and rural communities. Was there was there something at play there in terms of even that interaction in your family between those living in the city and those in the country? And there? Definitely, because what started to happen was these um, crowded in-city area, like uh, in Kingston. So you, you start to see that happening where people are going to city. They're country folk, but they're going to city to work and for better opportunities, much like people in the United States immigrated to, you know, places further north, right, mm -hmm. for a different life and the potential for that, for entering a different level of society or giving their children more whatever that is, right? So in my house, um, long story short, Garvey was a hot topic of conversation. There were things said, I wrote some of these things like um, that Garvey was, we used to hear about Bagawaya. Bagawaya. You know Bagawaya? <laughs> no, I don't know Bagawaya. Tell me, tell us Bagawaya. I'm sure there are many who do, but I'm not one of them. What's Bagawaya? We used to hear about Garvey was betrayed by Bagawaya. Um, apparently that was the person. Oh yeah. Right. So that was the, we used to hear about that goddamn Bagawaya, like he was cursed <laughs> in our house. There was just this conversation about how, you know, and there was a conversation about how Marcus Garvey was sold for rice and rice and peas, like how this, how um, the desire for entering that class or money or separating oneself that he was sold and sold out by his own people. Like that was part of the conversation that we would have, that, that I heard, right. As a, as a young person, it may not have been said to me, but I was, um, you know, in the room, right. Probably ear hustling. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the room. Just, I was just, you know, and, and also something that I used to hear a lot is that Amy Ashwood never got enough credit. Oh, no question. About I used it. to hear that all the time that, oh, she's the one who run the thing and he left the thing. And, you know, so even though they loved Garvey, they felt as though she was never both Amy's were just never really pushed forward a bit more. So um, well, that's true. Yeah. In fact, there's a there's a scholar now working on a book on Amy Ashwood Garvey that is being uh, advertised as correcting the record. Of course, yeah. we can set that aside completely. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Tony Martin wrote a book called Amy Ashwood Garvey, wife number one. But Amy Ashwood, as we know, wrote her own memoir, Lionel Yard. She did with, and uh, yeah, the fights, John Henry Clark used to say this all the time. He said, you know, he knew both Amy Ashwood and Amy Jakes. And he said, you know, the things that Amy Ashwood would say, he said, I couldn't even write them down because if I had tried to write them on paper, they would have burst into flame. <laughs> he said, I mean, Amy Ashwood was right there with him. And you're right. And, and and of course, that dynamic, you heard, you know, obviously, uh, President Hunter, Karen mentioned uh, uh, Hubert Henry Harrison earlier. You know, there was a trial about Harrison. There was rumors of a relationship between them. Set aside that stuff. As a political thinker, though, as an orator, in many ways, and I'm, I wonder, did any of your relatives or any of the elders talk about her capacity for speech? Because Amy Ashwood Garvey apparently was a hell of an orator, perhaps even better than Marcus Garvey. I think she beat him as his kids one time. And of course, finally, the other thing I would say is that when they had the Fifth Pan African Congress in Manchester, uh, in Manchester, in England, Amy Ashwood Garvey is invited to preside over one of the opening wow. sessions. There's a picture of her there wow. at the Fifth Pan African Congress. Amy Ashwood Garvey is a fascinating figure. So they talked about her. You heard them talking about her too. 
I heard about Amy, um, but he, the man married two Amy's. Like, this whole thing. <laughs> like you know, when you marry somebody with the same name. And then, yes. like, um, I think Fred Douglas had the same thing, right? Like, yeah, wow. after Anna passed, people say he married a white woman. He said, that's late in the game. Him and Anna yeah. rolled for till she made transition. So people, yeah. they beat up Fred. But I'm like, Fred was married to a black. In fact, she the one got him out of slavery. Right. <laughs> she was a soul. So, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Mm. So the the other thing that was um, interesting to me, like when you when you speak about her as an orator, yes. um, I I hadn't heard that in our house, just that she ran the business when he yeah. wasn't there. And that if it weren't for her, it would have been worse even on him. And um, the other thing that I thought was interesting that I used to hear is that he learned how to orate in the United States. He wasn't a good, he wasn't good at that until he watched uh, other preachers, right? Do this. Yeah. Um, let me see. I made a note um, that he got to Harlem, right? Mm -hmm. And he was so, I used to hear that he was so nervous that he fell off the stage. Have oh, you heard that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, the first time he spoke, uh, Hubert Harrison, of course, gave him his first opportunity because by then Hubert Harrison had the Liberty League. He had done and Harrison from the from I want to say he's from the Virgin Islands. I forget which island, maybe St. Croix. I think so. Yeah. So they, they but you know, as you and you know this, of course, as a daughter of the Caribbean and as a New Yorker, regardless of which island you're from, you get to the city, they're gonna look out for you based on coming from the Caribbean. <laughs> so uh so yeah, but but Garvey, you're right. Garvey watched. And Harrison apparently was a spellbinding orator, and he wasn't right. alone. Those street speakers, I, I guess, you know, you came in, I guess you saw some of those orators in Harlem. I mean, I guess the descendants of that tradition, you get your stepladder, you do what you do. Yeah, it it, it builds, right? And so it builds to, to Malcolm, it builds to, right? So we have these influences as we go forward. Um, you know what it was? I wrote it down. I used to hear about Sunday, Sunday. You go and watch the man Sunday. And I thought it was the day of the week, right? Like he, it was a preacher on a Sunday. But come to find out, right, that this was Billy Sunday. Oh, was Billy that? Sunday. But as a child, you know, I just heard, oh, you go to watch the man Sunday. You're going on Sunday. You go on Sunday. And I was like, Sundays. Okay, well, that's the day people go to church. Oh, that's but interesting. It was Billy Sunday. Um, and what I found out was that he had a very athletic style that attracted crowds. So he was stalking the stage, you know, Chris Rock style, right? Like he's all the way on one side. He's With a lot more bass in his voice and maybe compelling because Chris Rock can hear him. Right. Billy Sunday. Style. He was and a radio he, preacher though, huh? He was an evangelist. And so he, he went to, um, church, uh, just for, you know, for solace. Like he just wanted to feel better, I think, just because he was not a oh, oh, Marcus Gordon. And then he watched Sunday and he's like, okay, wait a minute, I can get some things. So I'm sure he put some of that into those theatrics into, yeah. you know, what he was doing. And you but, for a different purpose though, because Billy Sunday, if memory serves me correctly, was, not only was he a famous preacher on the radio, he was, and I'll tell you, I didn't, I never heard of Billy Sunday until as an undergraduate, 
we put a production together at Tennessee State uh, of Pearly Victorious, you know, the musical, the one right. Alvin Davis wrote, right? And I played Pearly, and I had Whoa. to memorize, <laughs> I had to memorize the song. I won't sing it here, but it was like, the Lord lives up in heaven, the devil lives in hell, you and I, we do the best we can. Uh, uh, move over Billy Sunday, yeah. move over Billy Graham, make uh -huh. way for a new preacher man. But the whole, it, Billy Sunday was in the tradition of Billy Graham. Right. Okay, Garvey, that makes sense. Garvey takes the oratory of Billy yeah. Sunday in terms of the style, but what he doesn't right. take is the anti. It's almost like fashion adjacent, fascist adjacent, because Billy Sunday, them guys came along during the period when you got the anti-Catholic stuff, Charles Lindbergh, that stuff right. uh, Philip Roth writes about, and they made that HBO series, uh, The Plot Against America. These are the people who are against the Jews. They're against the cat. It's like a MAGA. Billy Sunday was like a MAGA type. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Garvey is listening to the oratory and he takes that style, but he doesn't take his ideology. That is fascinating. And you heard Billy Sunday as a child. I did. Um, the man studied from Sunday. And I was like, okay, he's studying on a Sunday. Like I didn't get it at all. And then come to find out that was the deal. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And so it just goes to show that. A lot of times we are influenced um, and we'll, you know, we'll take something from here and something from there. And it doesn't have to be the ideology, but it's that, the style, that athletic style of, of walking on the stage, because I'm sure that that humiliating moment of speaking on stage for Garvey and being so nervous that he falls off of the stage. <laughs> it's like, so between, between Amy and Billy Sunday and, you know, all the, it's like, oh, okay, okay. I, I, I understand the, the charisma that's necessary to get this job done. So I used to hear that. Um, and I also, what was the other one that um, he spent time in uh, St. Louis? Yeah. I used to hear that a lot. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting just you know, as an interesting thing to think about, like what goes on in St. Louis, like St. Louis has not budged. <laughs> you know, he went to protest there in St. Louis and still, right? Like St. Louis, you know, and not that the rest of the country is not a problem and the rest of the colonized world, but I thought it was interesting that that was a place he went and then he started to change from Jamaica, I need to think, to like, this is a problem everywhere. And I need to, Black America needs to be like where I am with it. And so those are the things that I heard. And that bag of wire, I don't know who he was. Um, in the, Somebody in put in the chat the Bernie Spear, the Bernie Spear talk, right, uh, uh, sings about bag of wire. I'm yeah. trying to ask it because, of course, my, the first Bernie Spear I think about, about is, no one remembers old Marcus Garvey. That song, Marcus Garvey, you know what I'm saying? But uh, no, and Marcus Garvey would come to pass. Right, Garvey's ghost. That Garvey's ghost. Garvey's ghost. And fact, Garvey's you, ghost. you don't want to ask you too about this because clearly your grandparents and that generation had direct memories of Garvey. Yeah, but yeah. you grew up. He remembers grew, that. He, he remembers when Garvey was sent back to Jamaica after his like he he was deported back after his jail term That's and right. he told me that that they kicked him out of America and they send a man back to Jamaica and the people don't even celebrate him like he felt that the Jamaicans did not celebrate him in a way that they really should have and there was that feeling in general so i those are those are kind of like those pivotal points in my memory for 
for Garvey, the conversation in our house. Well, that's interesting because we talked about this a little Karen on, on her radio show Monday, uh, Wednesday rather. Um, the Jamaican government, of course, the British really t- propping them up, <laughs> tried to tell the U.S. not to deport Garvey. They did not want him deported back to Jamaica. But the masses of people, in fact, when Garvey showed up in Kingston, got off the boat, he was supposed to go to Liberty Hall and give a speech. But there were so many people already in the hall, thousands around, that he 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 got up on the uh, running board of the car, gave like a three-minute speech, right. and said tomorrow, and they had to move to the stadium on the next day. Right. And it was still, like you said, that laboring class. But let, let me ask you, you know, obviously you weren't there for any of that, but man, what a gift to be able to hear that mouth to ear from people who were, you know, you you came of age in a polynational city like New York. Garvey, what was Garvey's presence then? Was it in the music? Was it in the conversation? I mean, I'm just, I, I, every time you talk about growing up, I think about that. And what a wonderful moment that must have been to be surrounded by this Pan-African vibe and to be at the center of it as a child. So was Garvey floated around in New York in, in the day? Yeah. You mean in my time? Yeah. I'm talking about your oh. time now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because um, see, heard, in, in Tennessee, we didn't hear Garvey. I, I, right. told, I heard Garvey in college, but I assume you grew up with him too. You grew up with him too. Well, you know what it is? Um, I think we have to take it in those steps, right? So yes, Garvey, I heard about Garvey. We were talking about Garvey. Um, here's the steps in my mind, right? You, please let me know, you know, but in my mind, you know, there's Garvey and then we have those, those children of Garvey, right? So then we have the other Pan-Africans, we, we move forward. I'm just gonna make big notes, right? And then we have we have Malcolm, right? Majorly influenced by Garvey and, you know, his, and possibly because he had parents who were Caribbean, right? Yes. And then yeah. we, we move forward, who were Garveyites. That's right. Okay, so then um, we, we move forward and we have Rastafari because of not just what I heard in my, in my house, right, in this conversation, because my grandparents were not listening to Burning Spear and they were not listening to those songs because that was not their generational path. Like my parents were listening to that, right? So mm-hmm. my grandparents were still listening to Mento, which is the music that comes before ska. And they were listening to the the origin, like the, the ska and then like, you know, how Toots and the Maids house and like those styles of music that yeah. gave birth to reggae. So they weren't in that set, you know, it's not like they were against it. It's just that then I heard that music and it was like my parents and partly my music. Yeah. And so what I observed was that reggae artists, as that started to come forward, came to New York or the music was traveling both to Britain and to New York primarily, right? And and parts of Canada, but like these are epicenters. And then that influences hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. style on the microphone, like the dub plates, the, the um, uh, instrumental versions of a song, what they call dub plates are played. And then people are toasting on the song and they're giving you things. And sometimes you'd hear that, like, is it Marcus Garvey, so-and-so, we have culture, right? So in between singing about 
you know, ladies uh, jiggly bits and, you know, having some kind of gunplay gun culture, because you have to understand these are like working class people. So this is what they're seeing, just like hip hop has always talked about what it sees. These are the nascent roots of hip of hip hop. And then we come forward, right? And of course there are American, like this is an American Caribbean mashup that you get in hip hop, but it's tremendously influenced by um, the Caribbean and Jamaica in particular. And that's why so many, you'll see so many hip hop artists are of Caribbean descent, right? And what we then see is that those styles of consciousness start coming forward. And so if you're listening to, the beginning, not, not the total, total beginnings of hip hop, but that like that almost middle school in the 80s, then you're hearing about consciousness and the conversations that we're having, you know, with the X medallions on and, okay, and the, yeah. you know, and the kufis, people got on a kufi and the X medallion and, and the red, black and green. That's when we started coming of age. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere, absolutely. everywhere. If you didn't have some red, black and green clothing, something was wrong with you. X plan said this is protected by the red, black and green. The red, the black and the green. Green. Right. And so we we would hear that. So everywhere you're hearing red, black, and green, it's there's Garvey, right? Everywhere you're seeing it, everywhere you're seeing a Koofy, you're seeing a, you know, so of course Malcolm X, right? And then Spike Lee does that movie and it, and it pushes it forward in terms of more Malcolm. But if you were really in conversation, you were talking about the influences, right? So Garvey was there. And um, it's, it's interesting to me how he's, He's played the influencer, but the backbone. Oh, he yes. He's played the backbone in that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. That's so a- hip-hop has it. Hip-hop really owes a lot to Garvey. It owes a lot to, you know, those those people who came out of that school and started talking about those things right alongside the other toasting that they were doing. So it's, it's amazing to me from Yellow Man to you know, um, Wild Apache, who was, you know, like all the, <laughs> right, we have Ninja Man, we have all these people doing this toasting. And so, yeah, they're singing about, you know, Punani this and so and so that. But then inside of that song or the next song, they're talking about culture, roots and culture. And then we get that rootsy music. And you can't mention it without mentioning Bob. You know, you can't say anything oh, about yeah. without mentioning Burning Spear and, um, you know, all, all of these groups, the Mighty Diamonds has Marcus Garvey in their song. So it just starts to move forward. What is the, oh, I'm sorry. What is the, um, you mentioned something at near the very beginning when we first started talking about commercialism in the market. I was looking at, uh, you know, school started last week and Howard has signed this 20 year deal with Jumpman and Nike. And I'm looking at these kids walking around with this Michael Jordan uh, silhouette jump man on one side. And then the other side, it says Howard University. And I'm just shaking my head. I understand money. But but when they did the NBA, did a basketball game, HBCU All-Star. And they had red, black and green in the logo. I mean, what is the impact of the market on activity that was, in fact, anti-capitalist? Because as you say, as you're talking about these artists, I'm thinking even about somebody like um, uh, Mighty Sparrow. Sparrow in Trinidad, when he's going after uh, Eric Williams, 
Yeah. He said they raise up on the taxi fare. No, doctor, no. And the cost of the milk is so dead. No, doctor, no. I mean, so much of that music and that culture is critiquing class, is critiquing power. And Garvey is their champion. Like I say the roster. But here we are today, and mm -hmm. red, black, and green is a marketing thing. I mean, people are using red, black, and green, and it, it ain't got nothing to do with empowerment and liberation. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it because you mentioned the, the, the market earlier. So I, I wondered if, what you think. It's very interesting. Um, there, you know, I, I think about the marketing that Garvey even had before we get to that, right? And the idea of um, uniforms, right? Yes. That, that military uniforms were empowering to people of color. That's why I wore this jacket today. I was like, let me put some. I know that's right. <laughs> you, got, you got the stripe. Little epaulets. Oh, you know, he always had his epaulets on and, and whatever. Yeah. And sometimes was criticized by people saying, well, you're wearing a white man uniform. Why do you have to wear that? Then, you know, uh, but the thing is he understood the power of dressing like you're in power, especially if people have been under colonial rule, number right. one. And number two, it sets up this concept of a nation. Like I am a leader who is worthy of being followed. Right. Um, I am a leader who you're going to have to contend with colonial forces because I own uniforms. What? You don't have a monopoly on uniforms. That's right. And so the idea of red, black, and green coming mm. through, and you hear it, like I said, you hear it in, in Jamaican, Jamaican music all the time, and even in the logos of, of Jamaican artists, and then you'll see it forward into hip hop. Um, I mean, look at Tribe Called Quest. Like every album they had, every symbol was red, black, and green. When you see that on their albums, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now, you know? Exactly. And so that marketing is there. Um, when we talk about the, the push forward and the appeal of red, black, and green and these colors, I mean, sometimes I wonder, Dr. Carr, if like our appeal, you know, I'm big on the DNA, right, of, of where we are and like how we live with certain plants we're attracted to, certain things in the natural world, certain things that remind us of our, of our heritage. And I, I often wonder, like, Gucci and some of these other brands that use red, black, green, and gold or red, black, green. Like if it's not something that's in us that wants to really be connected with that, but we're moving into this space of fashion, like these, these colors being used in that capacity. I mean, good example, um, our dear brother, Virgil Abloh, who passed on, um, made some clothing a couple of years ago for uh, for the off-white brand. And he had like a Jamaican jumper, right? Like a, a sweater and some other things. And they had red, gold, green uh, as the colors. And it, was, it said Jamaican, Jamaican flag jumper. And oh. that's not the Jamaican flag. And oh, so- You're going to remix know, it. It's not going to yeah. be political. Well, you know, they had to pull it. They pulled it. And um, and the you know the sweater that costs like six hundred dollars. Oh, I didn't know that they pulled yeah. it. They pulled it, and any of the other things that fell inside of that scope of the design. Because first of all, it's not the Jamaican flag, and people came after them. Um, and then you know, the, the, lots of folks in the Rastafarian community were like, "What is this? You know, like why are you using this and saying it's Jamaican flag? Like that's that's not accurate." Do you think and, if it had been accurate that they would have pulled it anyway? What would it have been had it been accurate? 
you know, that's a good question. I Jamaicans are just up for trouble generally. <laughs> okay. No, because I wonder because and I this think- is why. This is why we're Maroons at heart, the working class people. And um, and so we're always up for a fight. I like a little fight. It gets my blood going. Okay. So when somebody gives me trouble, I'm like, okay, let's do it today. You know? No reason I say, because, you know, they had to pull that Juneteenth ice cream, but they'll be back because they're going to be, you know, with the diversity, equity and inclusion yeah. uh, stuff. They'll hire a couple of black people who will tell them, no, do it this way. And yeah. then, and then you know, when they hit the right combination, we're probably going in and buy this Juneteenth ice cream. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, that's why I wondered whether or not. I, I wanted actually to convene this meeting today. I wanted us to have kind of a, a small strategy session, short one, just to mm -hmm. kind of start to this point, you know, what is our responsibility to reject when, when they do pay somebody or bring in because you know at the end of the day you, like you said dr carr they'll always come back you know it's no. like we can't get you this way we can't get you that way all right let's bring these trumped up charges oh that didn't work all right let's kill you all right that didn't work like there's all they're always they never sleep but we seem to get tired you know we get tired i'm tired of voting tired of you know <laughs> Just we we get tired, and I get it. You know, people that have worked endlessly for you know and built nations literally on our backs is exhausting. Mm. I don't think we have the luxury to be tired because freedom is the goal. No right? question. Be tired until everyone's free, like question everyone. And so, then and then get and then have to fight again because freedom isn't a permanent condition. No. So can we talk about what, what that looks like? I mean, Garvey, man, in a short period of time, and, and Dr. Carr, you laid it up, there was a crack. There was a fissure while they were fighting each other. You know, he was able to get in there and drop something in here, in here, right? He was able to drop That's this right. notion of self-sufficiency and of excellence and of coming from greatness that inspired nations of people all over the globe. Yeah. With achievements, it wasn't just rhetoric. That rhetoric then led to achievements. Yeah. Right. So where are we now, and what do we need to do to take? Because I I feel like we've we've all talked about this many times, and and Garvey's ghost, by the way, uh, is an amazing tea. I'm not doing an ad. I'm just saying. Oh. I talked about our TV. Garvey's ghost. A couple people in the chat. Garvey's ghost is the yes. Yeah. Oh. So we just say that. Shout out to the great North Carolinian and 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 and, and New Yorker. Uh, Max Roach, of course, because when I drink my Garvey's Ghost from 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 Calabash and Sunyata's conjured this Garvey's Ghost tea, I drink it. And I usually put on that Max Roach because that just keeps me going. I mean, in fact, what's that, what's that Garvey's Ghost, Sunyata? Magic. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sure the magic bonds it. But then, <laughs> <laughs> witches have magic. That's that thing, and um, and that's how we decolonize our thought process on it. That when we come out of maroon culture, when we come out of the, you know, I, I always assert and, and I'll fight anybody because I'm Jamaican. I'll fight a baby. You'll be talking about fighting all the time. Yeah, it's about the 10th time she talked about fighting. Why you want to fight a baby though? <laughs> yeah, that's her saying, right? I'll, I'll fight anybody. If babies are like this, you just push them over. They'll fall. It's not even a big deal. So okay. what I, <laughs> so, here, here's the thing, that fighting spirit, right? That maroon energy, I assert that that's really why Jamaica has become a brand. So when we talk about Virgil Abloh, when we talk about red, black, and green, when we talk about yeah. um, the use of these colors and um, 
you know, even Jamaican, uh, Jamaicans in the Olympics and, and, and other things, I just think the idea of, you know, Jamaican food and Jamaican culture and Jamaican music, I mean, you can't have punk music without Jamaican music. You can't have um, hip hop without it. You can't, have, you know, so this is a global brand. I've been in places in the world, Brazil, wherever, like I have gone in Braz to Brazil and and people like, oh, and they're speaking to me in Portuguese, which my Portuguese is okay, you know what I mean? But they're going a mile a minute. I'm like, slow down, and then I got you. And they'll say, they they will say, oh, I thought you were Brazilian, and I'll say, no, I'm from Jamaica. And they'll say, Jamaica, Bob Marley, and then they'll start singing in a way that is amazingly phonetic, like, oh, don't worry about that thing. Like, it's just, it's, it's off key. It's wonderful. It's everything. I love us because mm -hmm. they just took the song, even though they don't understand the words and it just feels right to them in their soul. And then they're like, Jamaica, Jamaica. They're looking around their store. Take this Jamaica. Take that Jamaica. They're giving me things. Wow. And that just spoke to me that this is a global brand. Garvey pushed this brand. This is a maroon spirit. You know, being from and Jamaica, Garvey is right in that that country. You know, he's right in that runaway bay area, which is my favorite, to be honest. And my and my parents were not even from that area. And you know, runaway bay and and these natural hot springs and this herbal medicine tradition and the idea that our, um, you know, our heroes, you know, from Kudjo to Queen Nanny or whatever, that these people fought using those natural resources. And to them, um, going into the hills and being of direct Ghanaian descent, most mm. of them, you know, mm. creating a Shanti village and creating Akampong City, renaming those places that are maroon colonies for our home in Ghana, right? That this says everything you need to know about Garvey, that that rematriation that he's talking about, the repatriation is about, is a direct line, right? And then the, the branding that the colors produce, like Jamaica decided its flag should have no red, no blue, no white. How about that? on purpose they did yes. not want to use colonial colors and they said we don't we just got the color wheel got stuff on it let's see what we got and yes. did did the same thing in that branding of red black and green but using the gold as the sun and the green as the land and the black and and deliberately and that was part of the problem with calling a jumper or a you know a bag or a toad and all these other things that they did the jamaican flag collection because we deliberately did not use those colors and so it's disrespectful you know it's disregardful but they got the bag for it so so <laughs> they got the the money bag right three things that we can do right now to mm. you know to uh, not honor because it's not even about honor like i feel like we you know we keep talking about this disruption right we had a 400 year disruption in our Ability, you know, you think about the great civilizations built and then they got decimated or conquered or, or got tired, and then in comes <laughs> enslavement, you know, for, for that period of time that just 
dispersed and then we erased our memory. Part of what we're doing in, in Narrative Anubia is to remember, we talk about that, bringing that memory back to who we are. And that requires education and us being fierce in our schools to make sure that the next generation of children learn about not just Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, um, but all of the things that the continent, you know, if I got to learn about England, which I did, well, you know, that was part of my history in the British, you know, why aren't we learning about what came before that in all of our schools? And if we can't push that in our schools, at least in our homes, that needs to be part of, you know, the, the message that we imbue our children with the knowledge of self, because that is important. What else should we be doing to build on the things? I mean, Garvey did that with very little money, very little education, but with a vision. Came here, man that didn't look the way people wanted people to look. You know, he was dark skinned with a broad nose, big lips, and all of the things that were supposed to be inferior and dirty, and galvanized six million people around a notion of self empowerment. It's amazing. Um, if if I may, yes. yeah, if I may, um, one of the things that was impressed in my house that came back to me as you're speaking, Professor Hunter, because what you're asking is brilliant. You know, we can study, and when people say, oh, it was a long time ago, stop griping about having been slaves and stuff. You know, Marcus Garvey, my grandfather saw Marcus Garvey, right? And Marcus Garvey's father was born enslaved. So stop playing these little games. Right. Okay? Stop playing these games. That's right. You know, you you sit a couple of 80-year-old people, 90-year-old people together, they got their, you you know, if you add their ages together, you got slavery. It's just like, cut it out, you know? And yeah. One of the things that was talked about in my house, Dr. Carr, was mm. the self-determination. And this, I think, is one of those pivotal aspects that Garvey got. I mean, he had a newspaper as a teenager, right? Like in Jamaica, That's he right. learned printing and had a newspaper. Um, his father... I remember hearing that his father made him sleep outside sometimes, not because he didn't love him, but he was trying to show him um, how do you survive certain things. And it wasn't all the time. It was like, let's see you escape from this thing. Let's see you dodge this thing and let's see you. And he was constantly drilling him because of his own experience, right? In slavery, in being enslaved. And the thing that came out of that conversation in our house was start your own business, start mm -hmm. your own businesses, become um, self-sufficient, that spirit of self-sufficiency and self-determination, which then went into the Black Panthers, it went into the Nation of Islam, it went, you know, so all these, these organizations that learned from Garvey, that one of the things that he left us with was, and even with the Black Star Line, he's like, Black people need their own ships, they don't need to stay in steerage, next to the animals and other things when you're traveling That's he's right. like we need our own stuff mm. and so starting a business patron patron patronizing other black businesses is essential he said right mm. and then one of the other things was do not criticize each other publicly in mixed company right? You keep that in family. You say, hey, there's an issue here. Let's try to resolve it. I want us all to be better. You know, when I hear people criticize 
uh, black owned businesses and they're like, oh, they didn't. Yeah, that's black owned for you. Yeah, they didn't send my. You don't say that about Target. You don't say that about other things. And our realization that we didn't have the resources and, and the multi-generational wealth to make this happen. We were the, the builders of that multi-generational wealth. So that criticizing of, oh, Black-owned bank, well, that's, that's yeah, that my, my card wouldn't work. My, take it easy. Oh, yeah. don't write <laughs> say, take it easy. easy. Be easy, man. Come to easy, easy. Ease up yourself. Cease and seckle, cease. And so that idea <laughs> that what mm. we need to do is if we have family issues, handle it like family. Hmm. Don't post it on YouTube. Don't post it on Facebook. Don't do that. Handle it internally because all of us, especially somebody who started a business or doing something or is a black owned bank or whatever we're doing, a professor at a university, you know, you can politely, we can find each other. Okay. If the FBI can find you and Facebook can find you and recommend, find the person say, Hey, um, you know, this happened. I really want to uh, for us to be in community. It's not like, oh, I supported them and they didn't do. What we say in our shop when somebody gets to our counter is our when it's time for them to pay, our exchange of energy is, and then whatever that number is. Mm. I don't let people say, what's the damage? Or, oh, what's the, there's no damage. Yes, yes, yes. And it's an exchange of energy. You're not supporting me per se. I'm supporting you and you're supporting me. We are exchanging things. And Garvey has that tenant throughout his writing about black owned businesses and that we must do that, whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, we must go to our own. I mean, Dr. Carr, how do you feel about that? Oh, of course. I mean, there's no, there's no way to feel about it other than to agree 100%. Yeah. I, mean, I, I wonder, and again, thinking about how you grounded in, in your practice and in the community around you and the communities you grew up in, that type of energy just multiplies that, that positive, not just, I don't want to say positive as opposed to positive and negative, but that, that, that generosity, that, that embracing, that, that inclusive spirit. And we think about ourselves as family. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, prior to, you know, the brutal, the brutal structures that forced us together, create a type of capacity in some ways, we never didn't think of ourselves as family, even with the internal, as you say, channel. Right. But since the formal end of apartheid in the place like United States, those cleavages now erupt in ways that we still claim family and, and it seems to me more often than in the past the concept of family has kind of dissolved into into almost a demographic label it's being held together by a description rather than any experiential thing i mean you know and people and and, and class then plays their role we see in the united states it seems to me that um you know, the the possibilities of doing something with that energy that will benefit mm. all of us have increasingly been channeled into performance. 
So, you know, when, 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 you know, it's one thing we should always be putting each other on. So I'm, this is not a criticism at all, but the idea of owning and controlling and people say, well, Garvey was a black capitalist. Well, don't, don't, don't channel that energy exclusively into capitalism. Ultimately that system has to collapse, but this, 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 this joint action, this collective action will ultimately attack and dissolve that if we hold ourselves at the center of it. But then I see this energy being channeled into, well, I got this position at Nike or HBO, or I got this position at Riggs Bank or Chase Manhattan. Or, so I'm going to put on two or three more people. And then so now we're here, we're representing, okay, that's a good sentiment, but that's not the ultimate objective. Your ultimate objective is to have your own institutions. And I wonder how you balance that. Because that impulse gets channeled in, in, in the system we're in into representation, into diversity. Yeah, see, uh, that's not, no, no. We want to be the ones in charge so we can build a different world, not be there was one of us here and now they're 15. And that, no, that's, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but how do you grapple with that as somebody who, you know, is an institution builder who came out of a, of a culture and a family and a community of institution builders. How do you balance that representation piece with the self-determination piece, which just seems to me is two different spheres. Well, when you say representation, you mean making sure that we're seen, right? Yeah, making sure we're in spaces we don't control with the, with the objective of what exactly? Well, we're going to influence, so like you mentioned Virgil Abloh, you know, yeah. Of course, they called it Jamaica. Why? Because he don't own that. You just, <laughs> we just want your swag. You know what I'm saying? We're going to jack your swag now. I mean, when you, you may transition, we're going to find another one and we're going to get that flag thing right. right. Ralph Lauren down there at Morehouse and Spelman. I'm looking at what are y'all doing? Wait, well, they see us. I feel seen. You should feel yeah. seen every time you look in the mirror or in the face of somebody. Else. What are you talking about? You feel seen. Oh, you're a master. You're talking <laughs> about your master. <laughs> Bob said, you got to emancipate yourself from mental slavery, quoting Garvey. <laughs> so I'm saying, yeah, that's what I mean in terms of that, you know, this, wow, anyway, but. No, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And when you talk about that representation, right, it, I, I bring it forward in my, like something occurs to me. If you, if you stay, if you stay with me, I don't know, I could be, but I think about how Garvey influenced the Black Panthers, right? Yes. And then I think about how you get the Black, from the Black Panthers and other Pan-African organizations, pro-African organizations, pro-Black organizations, Mm -hmm. you get somebody like Tupac. Yes. Okay. And in that, I think, I think Tupac, let's, let's set aside his later work mostly because I think he was psychically injured as, as lots of our, our folks are when they enter a main stage in the, you know, they, they enter the zeitgeist and, you know, is that he was a victim of being injured psychically, uh, you know, much like Biggie, like, you know, put into these spaces where other people were making money off of them. And um, there was violence going on and just the encouragement of that, um, and, and, and differently and differently even than Biggie and the rest, because he was born into an attack on black community. Here we are in black right. August 
And of course, we have to mention his step so-called stepfather. I say his father, Matuli right. Shakur, or still a political prisoner. His mother, Afini Shakur, the Shakur That boy was born, that young man was born into a violence against his community. So I mean the fact that he did anything at all is a testament to the strength of our community. So I hear what you're saying, right? He's coming yeah. Yeah, that trauma is revisited on him later in his life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. And it and it's revisited and it's visited upon him as he ascends, right? He's shot, you know, people are taking advantage of his vulnerability. He's put into jail. Like it's, there's this stuff that happens and then he gets into the hands of of someone like Suge Knight, right? And so let's let's set that later work. But when we look at his his earlier work and mid work, um, we see that imprint, you know, that thumbprint of Garvey, the thumbprint of growing up with um, freedom fighters, right? And when we when we look at that and we talk about the commercial representation, um, I think about the fact that Carl Kanai, like we have these black brands that started to come out right out of that whole, you know, I'm wearing the X medallion, I'm doing, you know, so during we have these like Carl Kanai, you got cross colors, you got, you know, so we have we have Ooh, Willie. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, we, we, we have came Willie up with that. Yeah. Absolutely. We have Willie Smith, who's who's this first really dynamic black designer who's in all these stores, you know, Macy's and here and there. And we were so proud, you know, that he's represented in these spaces. He was also, from what I understand, uncompromising within Mm. that. Right. So um, because his muse was his sister, who's, you know, thick, thick, beautiful Tukey Smith, you know, and he was cutting clothes in a way that complemented the curves of women instead of asking them to be shaped like adolescent boys. How about that? This is a representation. We feel seen as black people and black women because he's primarily doing clothes for women. Right. And we love that. Well, we're seeing each other. It's not them doing that. Right. We're seeing each other. Right. And they couldn't tell him how to cut his clothes. And that was part of his thing is like, you're not going to tell me how to do that. Now, the other thing that I find fascinating with regard to that period of time, you have somebody like Carl Kanai who comes out with his brand. He's having trouble like getting it pushed forward. Um, And he meets Tupac, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And fashion and hip hop always went hand in hand. This is since the beginning, right? That hip hop has influenced dress codes, you know, streetwear, and even to this day, what is mainstream now? Oh, what, you know, the sneaker culture. You yeah, know, they, they figured out how to make out of money off it, no question. So when you talk about the jump man and all of that, you know, this is just that sneaker culture that came forward, right, of Nike, right. Nike Air and, you know. And so when you have Carl Kanai, he comes out, he has a hard time selling his clothes. He meets Tupac, you know, on the set of something or, you know, backstage, you know, everybody was kind of all over the place. Right. And he says to him, would you model for my clothes? Tupac's amazingly beautiful. This is a beautiful creature. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I've seen Tupac in person just. Yeah, me too. I I was struck by almost the same time I saw Prince. He was petite. He wasn't a yeah. He was a little. I mean, he wasn't smallish, but I mean, he just smiled like this little guy. I, mean, I saw him when we were in a, in a, like a expo just after Juice came out. He came yeah. in out of girls screaming. I'm like, what? And then he came as he approached. I'm like, just a little dude. I mean, but it's yeah. almost like a doll. <laughs> it's like a little He's doll. tiny. And yeah. you know, and, and as an aside, we'll go back to Carl Kanai. Um, a, there's a young person I I met recently who said that they 
didn't know who Prince was. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he's a 17 year old and he's like, I didn't, I don't know who this dude is. I kind of heard of him, but I showed them a video and he said to me, that dude, like, it looks like a woman. And I'm sure that like, he's like, he kind of doubted his masculinity. Like maybe Prince had never been with a woman or whatever. I said, let me tell you something. <laughs> was he old enough to hear what you was about to tell him? <laughs> no, but I, I can't tell you what I said here, but I, I, okay, yeah, that's what I'm about to say. <laughs> it was real. And I, I just let him know that Prince was swimming in it. And like, there's, you know, you don't understand what he was doing, but this was a very appealing person. Mm. So when you come to Tupac, you come to this very handsome person who is so beautiful that as Jamaicans say, um, God must have touched you in your face and tell you you're beautiful. Like God just touched you and boom, right? And uh, Carl and I asked him that and he said, you know, sure. You know, I'll put your stuff on on stage and I'll wear it, you know. And he's like, would you mind taking some pictures? He's like, yeah. When He's like, oh, I'll do a photo shoot next week. That's and beautiful. Carl asked him, how much would you charge me? Because I want to make sure that I can, you know, afford your fee to come and model. And Tupac said, man, why would you even ask me that? Like, I'm your brother. Like, I'm not going to charge you to model your clothes. Like, I'm coming up, you mm. coming up. And he asked him for nothing. And that's the spirit we talk about with Garvey coming forward, influencing these other Pan-African organizations. You got then the Panthers and, and et cetera, right? We got a lot going on at that time. And then Tupac is born into that. He's like, why would I charge you? When a lot of people at that time who are hip hop artists were charging other people to do this, he could not see the sense of that. And so when we talk about representation, why are we not representing black owned brands? Um, I don't understand, especially, and I mean, you know, at an HBCU, I'm trying to figure it out. Oh, well, that's easy. That's just money. Right. Because it all because it all comes back, as we know, to this kind of neoliberal model. And so what you're describing is very much in terms of strategy, the impulse that we have to have. But the impulse will lead inexorably back to uh -huh. external control if we don't at some point say we have an ultimate objective, which is ownership, because that just turns into, as we know, with hip hop, that just turns into a label for yeah. a company that just turns into a, uh, a, a, a what do you call it? A fashion line within a larger house. It, right. uh, and, and, and you put on all your friends, no problem. And for every $10, you will make a dollar. Your friends will make 50 cents and we'll get the other $9 and 50, in other words, or eight fifty. So docs, both docs, where, where's the system? Okay. So we know we need to know ourselves, but where's the system that, would tell an HBCU that you're actually selling out your your students, you're selling out your culture, you're selling out. Oh no, they're not know, selling. Out. They're not selling out. No, it's going to be internships. I'm sure there was a a, a check involved in a yeah. twenty year deal. Free us, the rest of us. But HBCU isn't ours. I mean, that's just the thing. Demogra which again, we 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 have to distinguish demographic from this common kind of self-determination. I mean, HBCUs are black HWCUs in the sense that the thing that makes them different are the people who are there, but structurally, you talk about systems, 
they replicate that system. I mean, and that's not, I mean, Garvey, for example, spoke at Howard University and there was controversy. There mm -hmm. was a challenge to that. Uh, Garvey, you know, my, my, my dear friend and colleague, Claudrina Harrell, who has written on Garveyism, she did a dissertation. She's the University of Virginia. She did a dissertation on Garveyism in the South. And what you see is, as you say, uh, Senyata, I mean, he comes through St. Louis and Walter Johnson has a great book on this called The Broken Heart of America, because mm -hmm. St. Louis in many ways explains a lot of what we have suffered as a people in terms of its geographical location, the people who moved in, you know, Gerald Horn, Gerald is from, from St. Louis. But when he travels through the South, the HBCUs provide some of the people who come to see him as he's traveling throughout the South. And at the same time, those HBCUs, the presidents, the administrations, the oppressive uh, white boards, particularly for the public HBCUs, they are terrified of a potential insurgency from the students and in the surrounding communities because these are, as your family was and as my family was and all of us pretty much, are working class or laboring class. So when you bring those kind of people into a university, this is how we get in the 60s and 70s, as we know. This resurgence in Garveyism, in part, is driven by these college students, particularly at HBCUs, who are coming into this Black Power movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement. They're not only at the center of that movement, they are also influenced and influencing the HBCUs. And so now here we are in 2022. And we know those students. I mean, you've employed, employed so many of them over the years, you know, and I'm here teaching these students. We're there. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the structures are the same. So what right. we're seeing now is it is entirely uh, acceptable. In fact, in tiny doses, you can even integrate it into the corporate mindset mm -hmm. to have red, black and green, to do a little ethnic, so-called ethnic attire or maybe to have a kente tie or maybe wear your hair with it that hasn't been processed in a certain way you can do that now now at the same time the objective however is to get into that system right in some ways it's a betrayal but it makes perfect sense i mean uh, a partnership with a large corporation is a good thing right and 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 and, and, and far than far from me to criticize it I don't criticize it in part because we have to have spaces that we control to have different objectives rather than trying to spend all our energy trying to change something that was set up to do what it's doing. <laughs> you know, they almost lost control in the 60s and 70s, but slowly they've clawed it back. And now the people telling people don't get too radical. I mean, Sigma Pi Phi right now is meeting, I think they're in the Bahamas. And, you know, one of the things they do is say that for certain formal occasions and certain formal convenings, you can't wear African attire. You have to have on a suit and a tie. Okay. Yeah, my thing is good. That's why I'll never be a member of Sigma Pi Phi. Well, there be other members too, because I'm not going to tie a string around my neck again in life. If I, unless there's some particular reason, and I'm not mad at those who do. I'm just saying, you own this. You control this. You don't need anybody else around. Why? Because you're going to police yourself. Right. <laughs> because you still value something other than yourself. So that's not true. We have black designers. Mm -hmm. So why can't you have the option to have a black design that doesn't incorporate that aesthetic? Why? Oh, because in my heart of hearts, I don't think that I should occupy the highest rank. And as Malcolm asked the question, who taught you to hate yourself? That's what Garvey, Gar let me just want to think. I don't think Garveyism, 
And again, this isn't to make Marcus Garvey or Amy Jakes or Amy Ashwood Garvey into saints or heroes, because clearly we know they're human beings. But Garveyism is a challenge to the idea that we can't be at the center of our own reality. And even as it has its own internal contradictions, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the, I mean, they still have a lot of whiteness in there. They have declared that they're going to purge themselves of anything that doesn't allow them to be at the center. We can work out the details as we go on. Mm -hmm. when, when you mentioned the uniforms, yeah, I think about, you know, the Black Cross nurses, right? You know, the African Legion. Okay, yeah, the uniforms may still look like these other people, but there are uniforms right. and we created them and we bought them from ourselves and we're gonna make more. And then the next generation, we might switch the uniform up completely, but what will remain is we get to choose. I mean, and you've seen a lot of this up close. You you make decisions that always have us at the center, and they're constantly reminding us that we don't have to draw from outside sources for the choices we make. No, I mean, but you know what, Dr. Carr, um, you're you're on point completely, and that thinking that we don't have to draw from outside sources completely. You know, I mean, the cotton that's, that the shirt is made out of all the other things, you, you, we're going to have to um, use the devil's tools to, you know, move forward into saintness, right? Into, into saintliness. But I will say this, that it's a sacrifice, right? And I would- More question. Yeah. <laughs> why, I would did, need, why did you take that side? You would like- <laughs> <laughs> it's a set. What was that? <laughs> what was that, Dr. Common? <laughs> You're shaking your head like, no, I can't really. No, I mean, here's the thing. I would be remiss in my duties if I mentioned that Garvey said, own your own businesses, self-determination is the way to go. And that's what influenced all these other sets of people. And that's what influenced, you know, even the people in my own family. Like, this is something we should do for ourselves. And Truly, even though Garvey was villainized by certain classes of Jamaicans, right? And, um, you know, I firmly believe that this is one of the reasons why Jamaicans who come to this country over the decades have opened businesses and really put a foothold into communities. I mean, you can't go to Brooklyn without there's Jamaican restaurants and there's oh, Jamaican on this and there's so-and-so, okay. you know, and then the next set of Jamaicans um, of those, of the people of those children are going to medical school. They're going to here and that they're going to, you know, so there's a, there's a foothold and then a step. And I, and I feel firmly that Garvey is responsible for that. Here's the thing that if we're going to decide where and when we enter, where we enter into uh, this society and our proximity to wealth or, or you know, creating uh, resources, whatever those resources are, it's not just money. And I think sometimes we no, may not, not understand, right, that there are a bevy of resources. They're not just money. And we are so amazingly creative and inventive because we've had to be. And that's why these great things come out of us. That's why we could do something on a shoestring, you know, open a business and, and be like, and make it look dynamic, Absolutely. you know, and make it absolutely beautiful. Here's the thing. We may not necessarily be able to afford the real estate 
to buy a building, but we have to rent it. And so we have to get in bed with these other people who are, have gentrified a, commun a community or neighborhood. If we are, so there are sacrifices that you have to make for that greater good picture, as long as you're seeing that greater good. And the other sets of sacrifices are, there are things you will have to do without. You will have to honestly do without. And it it's a leap of faith to say, I'm not gonna get paid every two weeks. I'm going to have to step out on my own and move into that space. And when we talk about the side hustle in this culture, I, you know, I just have a side hustle. I just need a side, you know, I have, it's going to remain on the side unless we move forward into it. Mm. And this is what Garvey was saying. You have to go ahead and step into that and call on your community and say, I'm doing this thing and I want to give you something. I want an exchange of energy where I'm exchanging with you positively. And I want us to do that with each other. And maybe it's you know, Professor Hunter may ask about strategy. The, the first one you've been articulating in terms of vision, you got ahead of, and then this one here, sacrifice. Sacrifice. That side hustle has to be the hustle. And it doesn't have to be the hustle. Let me use a different language. Hard. No, 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 but that's the point of entry, though. That's the language we're familiar with. So now right. from that point, now where would you call it? If because young people say, Oh, yeah, the hustle, I got it. Now what would you call it? That hustle, that hustle culture is sometimes a struggle culture. And so no question. You know, moving from side hustle into um, vision, as you mentioned, and planning and determination, we're going to meet with the people we need. We're going to say, how can I learn from you? Or let me go to the bank and figure out what I'm going to need to get what I need, a loan or some capital. Let me go to my community and say, hey, will you all invest in something we can do together? And I want to spearhead this and I really want. And part of the reason why Garvey failed and people talk about the lack of his financial uh, responsibility everywhere you, you read, you see that the truth is he needed somebody who just handled that. He needed somebody who really stepped in. Well, then plus and plus there's external pressures. I mean, you know, right. that's why I'll dismiss just about all of the white facing white bread even if it's about black people scholarship on garvey over the last generation because to to your observation earlier it doesn't it does it two things it doesn't do the first thing it does it doesn't it has well it has a narrow definition of success and failure and it's in dollars and cents you can't to the point you raised when i think about you talking about your grandparents particularly your grandfather and talking about seeing Garvey, I think about, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Hugh Mozak's uh, daughter, Yuna, who ran Liberation Bookstore. Right. We talked about Liberation and how her father would tell those stories. And we talk about, and Roy puts it in the documentary about how when they would pull into the port in the Caribbean, the fruit would never make it back to New York. It would be spoiled because Garvey would tell them, stay there because people are bringing their children down. I suspect your granddad, maybe they want to be, you know, <laughs> they're bringing the children to the dock because they've never seen a ship controlled by black people loading stuff. And it's more important for them to see that than it is for us to sell these bananas when they get off the dock. And man, I mean, so, I mean, people say, well, he failed. Did he fail? I'm looking at Sunyata Amen and I'm saying not only did he not fail, he succeeded in ways y'all can't stop because you can't you can't put a number on inspiration. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is what you said. I was looking at a video of this young couple who had moved to West Africa mm -hmm. 
And you know, young people, you know, they have what well, we know, young, but at the same time, what they said is we're never coming back to the United States. And I'm laughing, I'm like, why are they saying that? And as they talked, it was clear they said, if we had waited to come, and they had their two children, one was an infant, the brother had the infant strapped to him. He said, They both said, if we had waited, we wouldn't have done it. He said, Sometimes you have to take a leap, and when you're in that leap, you will find the thing that has been speaking to you all along. And unlike uh, this system, I was looking today in today's Financial Times, this guy, uh, Adam Newman, uh, he says, Adam Newman, whose revolution in office working turned up a cautionary tale of startup hubris. He was the one who started WeWork. This week, one backing for his next big idea. Less than three years after WeWork's valuation crashed along with its listing plan, Flow pledges a seismic shift in residential property. The interjection from Netscape founder Mark Anderson put a value of a billion dollars on the project, which aims to address housing shortages, urban talent drain, and human longing. My point is, this dude who failed with WeWork just got a valuation of a billion dollars and like $350 million from this venture capitalist who said, oh, I like your vision of basically buying up all the real estate and trying. Now, my point is, ain't nobody come to Dr. Sunyata Amin and said, you know what? Here goes $350 million. If you had three hundred fifty, it reminds me when Jesse ran for president and we went to see him, we were in undergrad and Jesse was speaking in Nashville and he said, if the other candidates had my budget, they would they could not compete. And then he right. said, if I had the other candidates' budget, they could not compete. He mm-hmm. said the same way. And everybody just started cheering because we understood. If you had this guy's resources, and this man done messed up where we were, gets another billion dollar valuation. If you had his valuation, we would be free because you would have all of us. And if they had yours, we would be free. So, but, mm-hmm. but, but, but all we have, not all we have, obviously. But the main thing we have is to the observation you made and which has made you not only successful, even by these metrics that are so narrow, but successful in that larger Garvey sense. And as we are building Nubian narrative, making us successful, what we have is each other.